Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. following the news, and I don't know of anyone who hasn't, you'll be familiar with the audio clips that I just played. Preceded by his ever-loyal personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, thus spoke President Trump from the ellipse in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of January, 2021. Shortly thereafter, led by such key figures as conspiracist and rabid Trumpist Alex Jones, a massive crowd of Trump supporters, most of whom had just been listening to his incendiary rhetoric inciting insurrection and sedition, marched on the Capitol building. A violent riot ensued in which five people ended up dead and the building itself suffered major damage. Congressmen and women who were literally in the act of verifying the results of the Electoral College 
together with their staff members, along with Vice President Mike Pence and his staff, fled the building in terror, failing that many tried to find a safe place to hide from the violent mob. By now, several days past the horrific event, we've all seen the highly disturbing footage of Trump's MAGA army storming the Capitol. In a scene straight out of a zombie movie, the angry mob of Trumpists smashed windows, assaulted Capitol police officers, resulting in the death of one police officer, Brian Sicknick, who was murdered by the mob after reportedly being pepper sprayed and then hit in the head with a fire extinguisher as he and his colleagues attempted to stop the mob from storming into the building. Ironically, Sicknick himself was a Trump supporter, according to his family. In addition to Sicknick's tragic death, four others died, all part of the Trump mob who stormed the Capitol. Details are now emerging about the others, but we found out early on that a certain Ashley Babbitt, a 14-year U.S. Air Force veteran, was shot and killed in the melee. Authorities are investigating this death to determine whether or not excessive force was used. Next one was a certain Benjamin Phillips from Pennsylvania who suffered a heart attack during the riot and died. Phillips had apparently organized a caravan, a busload of Trumpists, from Pennsylvania to D.C. specifically for this protest that turned into an insurrection. Also among the dead were 55-year-old Kevin Greesons from Athens, Alabama, who, like Phillips, apparently died from an apparent heart attack during the riots. So who exactly was this Greeson? Well, according to Kenya Evelyn in an article in The Guardian, quote, Greeson posted racist diatribes online and associated with the Proud Boys, a far-right group known for enacting political violence and racial terror. She goes on, despite the family's insistence that he was not there to participate in violence or rioting and did not condone such actions, Greeson had posted to popular conservative social platforms calling for supporters to, in his words, load your guns and take to the streets in the weeks leading up to the events. Let's take this fucking country back, he posted to Parler. Like many of the white nationalists who participated, she says, Greeson never specifies from whom the country is being taken, end quote. The fourth and final death from the Capitol riots was a certain Roseanne Boylan, 34, from Kennesaw, Georgia. She also died from medical emergencies during the riot. Those who witnessed it reported that she had been crushed by the mob as it surged forward and suffered life-ending injuries. A passionate Trump supporter, this was ironically the first such Trump-related event that she had ever attended. Sadly, for her family, it would be her last. According to that same Guardian article, her brother-in-law, Justin Cave, told a local station that, quote, tragically, she was there and it cost her life. I've never tried to be a political person, he said, but it's my own personal belief that the president's words incited a riot that killed four of his biggest fans last night, and I believe that we should invoke the 25th Amendment at this time, end quote. Obviously, if you're keeping up with the news at all, there have been numerous calls, mostly from the Democratic side of the political aisle, for Vice President Mike Pence to hold an emergency vote of Trump's cabinet and invoke the 25th Amendment, thus immediately removing Trump from power. Ironically, although Pence did stand up to Trump recently by refusing to be a party to his attempt to overturn the election results, Pence is apparently not interested in trying to go down that line. Failing the 25th Amendment, then, it appears that the Democrats are working overtime to try and introduce articles of impeachment in an effort to get Trump removed from office prior to the 20th of January, which is, of course, when President-elect Joe Biden will be officially sworn in, inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. This heresy, on Pence's part, by the way, was part of what fueled the mob's anger and resentment. Now branding Pence a traitor, 
which is, again, I say highly ironic, given Pence's four years of unstinting loyalty and sycophancy to Trump, regardless of whatever he did or said, many within the mob were said to be looking for Pence in the Capitol building. There's a chilling picture, and I'm sure you've seen it, of a man dressed in full riot combat gear, clambering over the handrails inside the Capitol with a handful of zip ties. What were those for, other than to take hostages? We also know that many within the mob were also chanting that in addition to finding and lynching Pence from a nearby Capitol tree, some were reportedly looking for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer as well. What would they have done if they'd found any of those three people? In a January 9th article on HuffPost, journalist Mary Pappenfuss pointed out that these scenes were reminiscent of last year's plot by far-right militia groups to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. In addition to the alleged kidnapping plot, there were also other explosive incendiary devices found nearby. She states in her article, quote, The Capitol was ransacked after supporters of President Donald Trump stormed the building, leaving five people dead, including a police officer. But even larger destruction may have been planned. An Alabama man was arrested after 11 Molotov cocktails were found in his truck, ready to go, investigators announced and pipe bombs were discovered outside the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee. And she concludes, discussions of future armed protests, including during Inauguration Day, are emerging online, end quote. But as I say, if you've been following the news at all, then most or all of this is by now common knowledge. What I want to focus on in this bonus episode are two aspects of the Capitol riots that, as far as I can tell, are not receiving a great deal of attention. First is an exploration of the power of conspiracy theories to attract followers, particularly Trumpists. What we've been seeing with increasing frequency during the Trump era is the rise of conspiratorial thinking. In my first three bonus episodes I did on the many failed Trump prophecies, one feature that kept recurring among the charismatic prophets and apostles, in addition to their false prophecies, was how they not only believed in wholeheartedly, but continued to disseminate Trump's increasingly unhinged conspiracy theories around the November 2020 election. And we have seen since then that they, for the most part, have continued to promote them alongside other Trump loyalists such as unhinged attorney Lynn Wood, as well as another of Trump's favorites, lawyer Sidney Powell, who ironically is now being sued by the Dominion Voting Machine Company to the tune of $1.3 billion for defamation. We've also seen another of Trump's crack legal team, Rudy Giuliani, promoting Trump's fever dream conspiracies, as we heard in the clip, and continuing to file lawsuits in various states, even as they're being dismissed left, right, and center. In addition to this, even though I've covered QAnon a while ago in an episode with Chris Shelton, it's worth mentioning that a great deal of these conspiracy theories are part and parcel of the QAnon cult universe. Many of the rioters at the Capitol displayed Q flags or wore QAnon-branded clothing. In fact, there's one viral clip, you may have seen it, of a single African-American Capitol police officer retreating up the Capitol stairwells, aggressively being pursued and confronted by a man who, of course, had a large mob of people behind him, but this guy is wearing a Q hoodie. Also going viral are the many photos of a certain Jacob Anthony Chansley, who is better known as Jake Angeli, as he wandered the halls of the Capitol wearing Viking horns, red, white, and blue American flag face paint, and a giant bearskin headdress. Carrying a bullhorn and an American flag, Angeli, who is also referred to as the QAnon shaman, 
has apparently now been arrested for his role in the riots and is awaiting sentencing on charges of unlawful violent entry and disorderly conduct. What we also discussed in that episode with Chris Shelton about QAnon is that this QAnon conspiracy theory that's spreading like wildfire among American evangelicals. This brings up the second point that I'd like to cover in this episode, the extent to which Christian nationalism played a significant role in both the earlier protests as well as the Capitol riots themselves. On prominent display were a great many flags and banners with such statements as Jesus 2020 or Jesus saves. A large wooden cross was installed across from the Capitol building, and even Jake Angeli, the QAnon shaman, was photographed at one point holding a sign that said, Hold the line, patriots, God wins. And what did the other side of Angeli's sign say? Q sent me. But there's more. According to Kimberly Wilson, in a Religion Unplugged article dated the 6th of January, more specifically, Christian iconography was on full display. She notes that the following were also seen during the Capitol riots. Quote, the Christian flag, an ecumenical white flag with a blue field and red Latin cross, was carried by one rioter onto the floor of the House of Representatives, even as guns were drawn to keep them out. At least two flags featuring the ichthus, the outline of a fish adopted by early Christians, an American flag altered to read, Make America Godly Again on its white stripes, a white flag with a green pine tree and the words, An Appeal to Heaven. And blowing prominently in the foreground as the mob kicked in a Capitol door was a red, white, and blue flag that proclaimed, Jesus is my savior and Trump is my president on either side of an elongated American flag. And she concludes, in addition to these flags, there was at least also one yellow banner reading Jesus saves seen on the Capitol steps and multiple articles of clothing touting Christianity, including a Jesus baseball cap and a jacket with sleeves printed with the words, cry to God, end quote. Beyond these obvious displays of Christian nationalism, many observers of the mob also noted that at many points prior to the entry of the Capitol building itself, a great many groups, including some of the Proud Boys, stopped and took time to pray for God's guidance, invoking a nationalistic prayer as they sought to turn America back to God somehow by their actions. Although there's more that we could talk about, what's important to point out is the clear and obvious connection between the rioters and Christian nationalism, the myth that America was founded expressly to be a Christian nation by the Founding Fathers. Having lost our way and strayed from the path of righteousness and the covenant that the Founders made between God and the United States, we need to get back on track by returning to a Christian nation status once again. Somehow, in their way of thinking, loyal Trumpists saw Donald Trump as the vehicle anointed and appointed by God to help return America back to that Christian nation status once again. Now that it appears he's about to be booted out of office, they are predictably outraged and angry about it, particularly since they are believing the lie that the election was stolen from Trump, who rightfully won it by a landslide. When we come back from the break, let's get into this issue of what is the draw of conspiracy theories. Alright, before we get back into this episode, I just wanted to take a few minutes and say a huge thank you to the number of people who have decided to support Mindshift Podcast on Patreon. I've got a long list here, so let's get through this. Thank you to Dr. Terry Daniel and Emily Denae. Thank you also to Damaris and Wanda Hedrick, as well as to Bev Opalka, Martin Rossiter, Emily Kiang, and Jeffrey Little. So thank you to all those people who decided in January 2021 to support Mindshift Podcast. 
when I get a chance, we've actually been snowed in here on the rock, so I couldn't make it out to the post office on Saturday. We had about six inches of snow and all the roads were blocked. I'm going to make it out hopefully this week and send you a very nice little Welsh gift for those of you that supported the show at a $5 a month level. So thank you for that. Your support helps cover my monthly expenses and keeps me bringing you this show each and every week, every episode that I drop. So thank you everyone who supported the show on Mindship Podcast. If you want to help me out, the links to the Patreon page, as always, are in the show notes. Or you could just go on Patreon.com and search Mindship Podcast and look for my name. All right, let's go on back into looking at this issue of how exactly does Christian nationalism plus Trumpism equal the Capitol riots? What's the draw of conspiracy theories? Generally speaking, what exactly is the draw of conspiracy theories? According to a helpful article on the EU website, which is ironic given the number of Christian conspiracy theories about the European Union being somehow part of the revived Roman Empire of biblical prophecies, the article points out that there are a number of drivers that dictate why people are attracted to conspiracy theories in the first place. As we pointed out in the episode on the cult of QAnon with Chris Shelton, one of the main factors this last year contributing to the spread of conspiracy theories has been the COVID-19 global pandemic. The notion of a plandemic or scamdemic in which a shadowy global cabal somehow engineered both the manufacture and release of the virus for some nefarious ends, such as, for example, ruining the world's economy uh, to hurt Donald Trump or the aim of implanting a microchip in vaccines to track people. Guys like Bill Gates are behind this. This has literally exploded online since the initial lockdowns last March of 2020. But what exactly is a conspiracy theory? According to the article, a conspiracy theory involves, quote, the belief that certain events or situations are secretly manipulated behind the scenes by powerful forces with negative intent, end quote. Although conspiratorial thinking has been around for literally centuries, for example, blaming and then brutally persecuting Jews in medieval Europe for the spread of the plague, there are at least six factors that virtually all conspiracy theories have in common. According to the EU article, these include the following. Number one, quote, an alleged secret plot. Two, a group of conspirators. Three, evidence that seems to support the conspiracy theory. Four, they falsely suggest that nothing happens by accident and that there are no coincidences. Nothing is as it appears and everything is connected. Number five, they divide the world into good or bad. And finally, number six, they scapegoat people and groups, end quote. But why do conspiracy theories flourish? According to that EU article, conspiracy theories, quote, often appear as a logical explanation of events or situations which are difficult to understand and bring a false sense of control and agency. This need for clarity is heightened in times of uncertainty like the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. Often starting as a mere suspicion, conspiracy theories are given life when people start to wonder who exactly is benefiting from a certain situation or development. The conspirators, allegedly behind the event or circumstance, shadowy figures who are secretly pulling the strings, are then identified with supporting evidence forced to fit the theory. Once taken root, they can grow incredibly quickly, especially given the immediate nature of social media and the internet today. And they are incredibly hard to refute because anyone who tries to talk sense into the conspiratorial thinker is somehow seen as being part of the conspiracy. 
you're one of them, according to a January 2021 article in the Personality and Individual Differences Journal, a group of Polish researchers conducted a study of this issue of conspiracy theories and the connections to the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the authors, quote, conspiracy theories can be defined as attempts to identify the cause of various events as plots by secret and powerful groups rather than as natural or caused by transparent actions. Belief that secretive actors are conspiring to do harm to the collective good are common in modern societies, and their spread is facilitated by growing internet access, end quote. This is certainly the case both with conspiracy theories related to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as Trump's baseless allegations of voter fraud and a stolen rigged election. If it were not for the internet, and in particular social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, and rapidly growing Trump-friendly outlets such as Parler and The Donald, this line of thinking would not be so rapidly disseminated and shared worldwide. In fact, the planning that went into both the initial protest at which Trump spoke, and then later that day at the Capitol riots themselves, had been growing rapidly in the days leading up to the events on social media among Trumpists. But what are the major drivers behind why a segment of society might be drawn to conspiracy theories in the first place? According to the article, quote, numerous studies have shown that people are particularly inclined to believe in conspiracies during societal crises, such as natural disasters, wars, terrorist attacks, financial crises or diseases, when people are seeking to make sense of a chaotic world. And they go on, they say, as existential threats grow, so does people's willingness to find meaning in the situation they are experiencing. Although in most cases, conspiracy theories are clearly incorrect and unfounded, they can help people regain a sense of the world, providing them with simple answers about causes of a certain situation and who can be trusted and who cannot. They conclude, therefore, in times of heightened uncertainty, conspiracy theories may serve as a guide for attitudes and behavior, what to think, what to do, and what to avoid in order to reduce danger, end quote. And there's another aspect to this as it relates to evangelical Christians. This is something that Chris Shelton and I talked about again in that episode on QAnon, the idea of what's called teleological thinking. The idea is that people believe that there's an uncaused cause behind everything. In other words, the God who created the universe, he's the one who's behind everything. And they have found, studies have shown, that believers in young earth creationism are far more likely to be susceptible to conspiracy theories due to this teleological thinking, the belief that something is controlling things and that is God. And also this goes along with this idea that they, this always this shadowy group, this they, they don't want you to know the truth about how the universe was really created in six days, literal 24-hour days, between six to 10,000 years ago, the scientists are conspiring to keep the truth from everybody. And the truth is, is that God created the world according to a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis chapters one, two, and three. And so this is how this teleological thinking works. So we find for example, that QAnon's beliefs are spreading super quickly among evangelical Christians, and I think a lot of it is due to this teleological thinking as well. In addition to teleological thinking, conspiracy theories also contribute to an in-group, out-group orientation, a we-they type of thinking. We have the truth and they do not, a black and white sort of thinking. For example, this is seen extremely clearly with the cult of QAnon, with its loaded language that only insiders know 
We see slogans worn on t-shirts or displayed on signs such as WWG1WGA, which means where we go one, we go all. We see slogans like The Storm and The Great Awakening, or we hear knowledgeable references to the deep state, Q drops or Q breadcrumbs. What's that all about? In addition to this, adherents of the QAnon cult can simply assert proudly that we are Q or that Q sent me, and other followers know exactly what that means, whereas outsiders may be puzzled by these pronouncements. Such statements proclaim one allegiance to the in-group and guarantees instant understanding, acceptance, and community by other adherents to the movement who are also in the know. Plus, those who don't get it or who push back against the conspiracy are proven to be outsiders and therefore can be labeled potentially as enemies. This is the purpose of loaded language. It is insider jargon that only true believers or dedicated followers will know and understand and is therefore loaded with certain key meanings. Within Christianity, for example, we see Christianese. That is an example of loaded language and we see it in the cult of QAnon. Well, how does all this relate to what we saw in the recent capital riots and the ensuing violence and death that occurred? Well, numerous studies have demonstrated that conspiracy theories contribute to intergroup hostility. In other words, conspiratorial thinking begins to serve as a core mindset or an entrenched mentality that identifies and then defines potential enemies. In this case, the enemies are people like Vice President Mike Pence, who is now apparently a traitor for committing the heresy of abandoning Trump in his hour of need. We also see people labeled enemies like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, or any other leading figure who dares to speak out or oppose Trump's agenda. In addition to this in-group, out-group orientation, conspiracy theories have also been shown to contribute to anger-related feelings. That's important because, according to that Personality and Individual Differences article, those feelings of anger, quote, can motivate people to act to confront the anger-evoking target, end quote. Obviously, this was what we saw during the Capitol riots, an angry mob of Trumpists who smashed their way into the Capitol building, intent on assisting Trump with his coup attempt, with a view to stopping the democratic process of confirming Joe Biden as 46th president and possibly lynching a few enemies along the way, too. There's also an element of xenophobia involved here, too. Once that outgroup has been identified as the enemy, they are now fair game for projecting violence upon. This is related to the cult-like aspect of what Dr. Robert J. Lifton calls the dispensing of existence which is a hallmark of cults. In his 1964 book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, Lifton states, quote, The totalist environment, in other words, the cult environment, draws a sharp line between those whose right to existence can be recognized and those who possess no such right, end quote. Thus, the totalist world is divided into two classes, those inside and those outside, those classified as people and non-people, which, of course, arises from the cult-like totalist us-versus-them in-group, out-group orientation. Those outsiders are, in effect, non-people. And, ex and in extreme cases, such as in Nazi Germany or communist Russia, they've literally been put to death for their crimes against the state or questioning or taking a stand against the status quo. The authors of that Personality and Individual Differences article go on to state that the in-group, out-group orientation can lead to violence, anti-democratic actions, and xenophobia. 
they state that, quote, in addition, as conspiratorial thinking is linked to a greater acceptance of the use of violence and less support for democratic actions, it is likely to be related to the acceptance of xenophobic policies against potentially dangerous outgroups, end quote. Although we have certainly seen xenophobia in terms of disparaging other nationalities, for example, as it relates to Trump's vilification of the China virus or the Kung flu, the word can also mean hatred of other cultures, too or other groups. Other associated synonyms that go along with xenophobia are words like intolerance, racism, nationalism, jingoism, bigotry, bias, prejudice, ethnocentricity, and isolationism. In other words, Trump's platform of America First is an isolationist, nationalistic, ethnocentric platform that seeks to privilege white Americans above people of color, folks from the LGBTQ community, or any other religion that is not exclusively Christian. When we come back from the break, we're going to get into this issue of the element of Christian nationalism and how that's related to all this cult-like conspiratorial thinking. Let's just take a minute here and talk about what's coming up here on Mindship Podcast. What's in the pipeline? Well, the next episode that's going to drop is going to be a discussion with Paul James Caden of the Mind's Eye Podcast. I was just on his show recently, followed by an episode with Janine Puckett. We're going to talk about her amazing story coming out of really a charismatic prophetic sort of background. It has a lot of resonance with the stuff I've been talking about. That's an unbelievable story. So we've got those episodes lined up. I've also got a bunch of people that are queued up this week and next week to interview. I'm going to be talking with Peter Montgomery on Tuesday. That's going to go straight to YouTube. We're going to be doing this, trying to do this once a month anyway, talking about movements within the Christian right. And a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about is related to the Jericho March, some of the things I'm just covering in this episode. But I want to hear what Peter has to say about this, looking at developments on the Christian right. I've also been talking to Catherine Stewart as well. We're going to be doing an episode coming up as part of my series on profiles of the Christian right. So we've been in talks about what we want to cover on that. I've also talked to Mark Potok. That episode is going to be coming out as well on Doug Wilson. That's really the first episode that we're going to be doing here on this issue of profiling the Christian right. And I've got some other people in the pipeline. I've also been talking to Dr. Yanya Lalich, who was on the show a couple of years ago. We talked about cult psychology. She's an absolute fascinating person to talk to. She's a sociologist. And I hope to talk to her about a lot of the stuff that's been going down with the Nexium cult, as well as this issue of what I've been researching, the topic of religion and mental health. So some absolutely fantastic stuff. I'm also going to be talking to Josiah and Ann Jiska Meyer. They do a podcast called the Seeking Health Podcast. I was just on it a few weeks ago. So I'm going to turn around and do a favor for them as well and have them on my show. So that's going to be coming up. So I've got some absolutely fantastic interviews lined up this week. I'm also going to be talking to Mark Potok again, and I think that will go straight on to YouTube as well. So really cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Also, one last thing before we get back into this episode, there's some really amazing Mindship Podcast Zoom calls, the group calls that we do every month. This is part of our closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group for Patreon supporters of the show. We've got Jared Yates Sexton of the Muckrake Podcast coming in on the 16th of January followed by later on in the month, we're going to be talking to Rebecca Drumsta, who was just on the show a few weeks back, 
Then in February, we've got Dean Krosetz of the People I Meet podcast. He's going to be dropping in. And also Seven, who was on the show uh, a few episodes ago as well. In fact, I think he was the last one that I dropped in 2020. So Seven's going to come back. We're going to talk to him. So we've got actually two Zoom calls in January, two coming up in February. I just want to keep having more Zoom calls. I want to have more people on. I don't want to schedule it out too far. So some fantastic stuff coming down the line. I'm really excited. All right, let's get back into this episode. Let's finish it up looking at this issue of Christian nationalism and how that played a part in the Capitol riots. final piece of this episode is what I mentioned at the top of the show. I wanted to talk a bit about the prominent Christian nationalism that was on full display at the recent Capitol riots. According to Molly Olmsted in a January 7th article on the Slate website, she says, quote, In the crowd of insurrectionists who seized the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday, Christian imagery was rife. Alongside Confederate flags and white supremacist symbols, protesters shouldered crosses, waved Jesus saves signs, and hung oversized Jesus 2020 banners. One rioter who made it inside the building carried a Christian flag. Outside on the National Mall, people chanted, Christ is King. And as the reporter Jack Jenkins noted, some of the crowd referred to the neo-fascist Proud Boys as God's warriors. She goes on to say, There was no denying the religious rights role in Wednesday's events. In the aftermath, many evangelical leaders condemned the violence, rarely to a warm reception. Prominent Donald Trump supporters who offered stronger denunciations of the events were met with accusations of too little, too late from liberals and charges of abandoning their president and their principles from conservatives. And not all leaders took that tack. A smaller number of religious leaders grasped for conspiracy theories, end quote. What conspiracy theories? Well, in addition to the lie concerning the fraudulent, stolen, and rigged election, there's another one now being pushed by certain evangelicals. This is a really fascinating development, I think. There's a number of prominent evangelical leaders who are now promoting the baseless conspiracy theory that it was actually Antifa, not the MAGA army of diehard Trumpists who actually were responsible for the riots. For example, Eric Metaxas, tied together elements of conspiracy theories and Christian nationalism when he tweeted out on the 7th of January, he said, quote, There is no doubt that the election was fraudulent. That is the same today as yesterday. There is no doubt Antifa infiltrated the protesters today and planned this. This is political theater, and anyone who buys it is a sucker. Fight for justice and pray for justice. God bless America, end quote. But it wasn't just Metaxas that was the only voice pushing this new baseless conspiracy theory about Antifa being responsible for the violence. Olmsted goes on to report that, quote, he, that is Metaxas, was not alone among evangelical public figures. The televangelist Mark Burns called the assertion that Trump supporters were responsible a lie from the gates of hell. And she goes on, and while the evangelist Franklin Graham warned that our country is in trouble and called for Christians to pray for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, he also speculated that the people who broke the windows were most likely Antifa. To tell people to go home, it's not for me to decide that, he said. End quote. Another prominent evangelical leader promoting this baseless lie is the anti-mask pastor Greg Locke. He's become famous, or perhaps infamous, 
for posting videos ranting in his car about how Americans aren't going to take it anymore and how pastors who keep their churches closed during the pandemic are complicit cowards who are responsible for the demise and decline of America. You can hear that and more by following at Pastor Locke with an E on Twitter. In response to the outcry over the Capitol riots and the finger pointing of blame toward Trumpists, Locke tweeted out on the 8th of January this following gem. He said, quote, Portland has Antifa leveling businesses and destroying federal buildings and not a peep from the media. Antifa infiltrates a peaceful protest at the Capitol in D.C. and the media and their elect president calls patriots domestic terrorists. This is only the beginning, end quote. And by the way, in case you are a follower of Locke and he does get banned from Twitter or Facebook, have no fear. He's got a growing social media presence on the Trump-friendly site Parler, so you can head over there, create an account, and follow his latest rantings and conspiracy theories. Although, this may be a problem because I've just heard that Parler has been withdrawn from Amazon and Google, and so it's being clamped down on. So I'm not sure what Locke and the other diehard Trumpists are going to do if they lose one of their favorite platforms. And remember, this guy's an actual pastor of a church, let's not forget out of Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And apparently due to his increasing prominence, he was one of the keynote speakers at the recent January 5th Jericho March held in Washington, D.C., where he promised his listeners that God had informed him that many prominent Democratic leaders were going to be toppled by God in 2021. Among other of his incendiary statements, Locke also led a prayer for Enrique Tarrio, leader of the far-right Proud Boys group. According to an article on religionnews.com, quote, Tario received prayers from Trump supporters on Tuesday evening when Pastor Greg Locke led a crowd in praying for the Proud Boys leader and his organization. He, that is Locke, added, now Locke speaking, he said, Lord, they may get a bum rap on the news media, speaking of the Proud Boys, but we just thank God that we can lock shields and we can come shoulder to shoulder with people that still stand up for this nation, end quote. Speaking of the Jericho March, this Christian nationalist organization needs to be closely monitored. Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch and I did an entire discussion on the first one that was held on December 12th in D.C., and you can watch that chat on the MindShift YouTube channel. But there was another one held on the 5th of January. By promoting Trump's baseless conspiracy theories about election fraud and tying God into it all, they helped to give the rioters who stormed the Capitol a righteous fury that they were not only on the side of right, God was on their side too, or maybe they're on God's side? I don't know. Let's take a closer look at the leaders of this organization, the Jericho March. They may not be very well known now, but they are quickly gaining in prominence among evangelicals, Catholics, and right-wing figures like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and Alex Jones. Both Alex Jones and Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers far-right militia spoke at the December 12th Jericho March in D.C. Peter Montgomery and I focused on these developments in our YouTube video, which I think is fascinating because it demonstrates the increasing connections between the Christian right and the alt-right. We see both in one, quote, faith event that brought together all parties under the banner of promoting Trump's baseless conspiracy theories around the election, together with a virulent brand of Christian nationalism and far-right white supremacy. The main figures involved in leading the Jericho March organization are, first of all, a certain Robert Weaver, who's apparently an evangelical insurance salesman out of Oklahoma. Originally appointed by Trump to head up the Indian Health Service Department, he later withdrew his nomination after the Wall Street Journal reported that he'd misrepresented his qualifications. 
The second leader is one Irina Gross, a Catholic who recently worked as a contract communications advisor for the Department of Health and Social Services. According to an article in The Atlantic by Emma Green on the 8th of January entitled A Christian Insurrection, like many other journalists I've mentioned, she also noted the widespread use of Christian iconography and Christian nationalism that was all over the riots. Green points out that many of the mob who ended up storming the Capitol, quote, were participants in the Jericho March, a gathering of Christians to pray, march, fast, and rally for election integrity after calling on God to save the Republic during rallies at state capitals and D.C. over the past two months, the marchers returned to Washington with a flourish. On the National Mall, one man waved the flag of Israel above a sign begging passersby to say yes to Jesus. Shout if you love Jesus, someone yelled and the crowd cheered. Shout if you love Trump, the crowd cheered louder. She goes on to say, The group's name, the Jericho March, is drawn from the biblical city of Jericho, a city of false gods and corruption, the march's website says. Just as God instructed Joshua to march around Jericho seven times with priests blowing trumpets, or shofar, Christians gathered in D.C., blowing shofars, the ram's horn typically used in Jewish worship to banish the darkness of election fraud and ensure that the walls of corruption crumble, end quote. What we're seeing here, in effect, is a conflation of Trumpism and Christian nationalism on a scale perhaps never before seen. Certainly this was the case with the Capitol riots, where for the first time a mob of rabid Trumpists crossed the line and descended into full-blown rioting, destruction of federal property, murder, insurrection, and a coup attempt. They've been on the fringes of it for months now, clashing with Antifa and Black Lives Matters protesters in various cities nationwide. People on both sides have indeed died, but what we're seeing now is a dangerous new development, sedition. Now, I don't want to get too far off into the weeds here, but there's another element that definitely needs to be mentioned here. In addition to the Christian nationalist piece, one other item is worth talking about, the aspect of dominion theology. I've talked about this a lot last year with various experts on the subject, such as Dr. Andre Gagne, Julie Ingersoll, and Michael McVicker, just to name a few. You can go back through the archives of my older episodes on topics like Christian Reconstructionism and Dominion Theology, either on my website, mindshippodcast.co.uk. You can access the Mindship Podcast on the Podbean app, or just look up the playlist I've created on my YouTube channel. As I say, I don't want to get too much into this because I've already covered this in a lot of other episodes. But basically, dominion theology is the teaching that Christians have been mandated by God to take dominion over the earth. For this teaching, they take their cue from the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. In that text, which is, of course, the story of how God created the heavens and the earth, according to the biblical record anyway, after creating humanity, God speaks to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As part of their duties to oversee this brand new creation, among other things, God tells them to take dominion over the earth, which most dominion theologians take to mean political dominion. That's how they interpret it. In other words, the dominion mandate is all about establishing a theocracy in which Christians are running the show, making and enforcing the laws of the land. And that is the theocracy, the vision that many of them have. 
Now, as I said, I won't get into too much detail here, but I'll just say that this teaching has been a major driving force behind the Christian right's involvement in politics for decades now. It's also closely tied to the beliefs in the myth of Christian nationalism that I've been talking about, since the belief that America has a special covenant relationship with God is one of the major drivers behind why a great number of American evangelicals supported Donald Trump, and they also think it's their mission to take over the world. As I mentioned earlier, a huge number of evangelicals viewed Trump as the specially designated vehicle anointed and appointed by God and confirmed through multiple prophecies. Now, if you really want to go find out more on this, go watch the 2018 movie, The Trump Prophecy. Jerry Falwell Jr.'s Liberty University helped to produce the film, which purports to tell the story of a certain Mark Taylor, a retired Orlando firefighter, with PTSD, who allegedly had a prophetic dream way back in 2011, several years, of course, before the 2016 election. In this dream, God apparently told Taylor that Trump would be president one day. So this is the kind of stuff that's been circulating around for years now in the charismatic and prophetic wing of evangelicalism. According to this view, Trump was going to be the specially ordained vehicle through which God was going to help them take dominion. Evangelical leaders like Lance Wallnau, for example, have long compared Trump to biblical figures like the Persian king Cyrus, who, although was he was a sinful non-believer, God still worked mightily through him to help the Jews miraculously return from exile and get back to the promised land of Israel. This kind of thinking, backed up by numerous biblical examples of flawed characters being used for God's purposes, also helps to explain why they could so easily overlook Trump's hugely glaring character flaws, lies, widespread corruption, and more. God truly does work in mysterious ways, apparently. It also helps explain why they're so incredibly angry that the election was apparently stolen by the Democrats. According to Trump's spiritual advisor Paula White and others, the Dems were apparently working in league with demonic forces to overthrow the plans and purposes of God to give Trump another four years as president. Now, I've talked a lot about this in more detail in my first three bonus episodes on the subject of the failed Trump prophecies and how conspiracy theories, charismatic prophecies, dominion theology, and spiritual warfare somehow all tie into the dominionist and Christian nationalist pieces of the puzzle. If you want more information on that, as I say, go to my YouTube channel where I've created a playlist just for those episodes so you can easily locate them. But returning to the subject of the Capitol riots themselves, another reporter for The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, was in D.C. on the 6th of January and attempted to interview Trumpists who were part of the mob heading toward the Capitol. In describing what he saw, note the chilling description of the conflation between Trumpism, conspiracy theories, and Christian nationalism. Goldberg worried initially that the event might be a super-spreader COVID event due to the fact that almost none of the participants wore masks. Goldberg describes the scene in detail, saying, quote, We will find out shortly if today's insurrection was also a super-spreader event. What I do know, after spending hours sponging up Trumpist paranoia, conspiracism, and cultishness, is that this gathering was not merely an attempted coup, but also a mass delusion event, not something that can be explained adequately through the prism of politics. Its chaos was rooted in psychological and theological phenomena intensified by eschatological anxiety. One man I interviewed this morning, a resident of Texas who said his name was Don Johnson, I did not trust this to be his name, told me that the country was coming apart and that this dissolution 
presaged the end times. It's all in the Bible, he said. Everything is predicted. Donald Trump is in the Bible. Get yourself ready. And he concludes, the conflation of Trump and Jesus was a common theme at the rally. Give it up if you believe in Jesus, a man yelled near me. People cheered. Give it up if you believe in Donald Trump. Louder cheers, end quote. But even though a few prominent evangelicals, like Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, condemned the violence, a great many have said, as we pointed out, it's too little, too late, given the widespread evangelical support for Trump over the last four years. Returning to Emma Green's article in The Atlantic about how the riots were really a Christian insurrection, we'll let her have the last word when it comes to the very few evangelicals who did speak out. She said, quote, but it was too late. Somebody else had already grabbed the microphone. This is bigger than one election, Grosu says on the Jericho March website. This is about protecting free and fair elections for the future and saving America from tyranny. Paranoid thinking, she says, abounded among the protesters in D.C. The QAnon conspiracy has circulated within some evangelical circles. On Wednesday, the Jericho March account tweeted a screenshot of Trump condemning Vice President Mike Pence for not stopping the certification of electoral college votes. A sad day in America, it said, along with prayer hands emojis. She says she concludes by saying, The march organizers were not mourning the attack on the Capitol. They were mourning the vice president's refusal to help the president overturn the election. End quote. All right, we're going to leave it there for now. There's a lot more that could be said. In fact, as I said before, this is something that Peter Montgomery and I are going to be talking about this week in our chat. We're going to be covering the Jericho March as well as some of the other developments on the Christian right. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to my YouTube channel and that way you will not miss any new content that's coming out. Thanks for joining me on this episode, this bonus episode, I should say, looking at how Trumpism plus Christian nationalism equals the Capitol riots. I will see you for the next episode with Paul James Caden of the Mind's Eye podcast, which is coming out this week. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Dr. Clint Haycock. You can find me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can also look up the MindShift podcast Facebook page and get a hold of me there. So lots of ways to find me on social media as well. Thank you for listening in. Take care and stay safe.